morning. Good to see you all. Am I not on? Can you hear me now? Okay. All right. Happy New Year. It's hard to believe that it's already 2020. I uh, hope you guys had a great Christmas and New Year. You had the, the opportunity to celebrate, you know, all of God's blessings, obviously including His Son. Um, I do want to just take a moment and thank you for your prayers uh, for my grandfather. Uh, you know, as Vaughn mentioned, uh, we're actually looking at uh, finding a place for him to go uh, to go into, uh, you know, a rehab facility to help. And uh, as he continues to heal, I mean, it's a miracle uh, because eight, nine days ago, we weren't sure that he was going to survive. And then God's people prayed, and my grandfather was healed. I absolutely believe that 100%. And so just thank you for your continued prayers for him. And uh, I know that that's just been a testimony uh, in, in the people that have watched him uh, just continue to recover. So thank you uh, very much for that. Uh, today is a big Sunday. We have uh, a few things that we are uh, doing today. Obviously, you can see it's a combined service. We're going to have uh, the Lord's Supper uh, one thing we're going to be doing a little bit differently with that in uh, 2020. Over the last couple of years, we've done combined services only for uh, Lord, the Lord's Supper. Uh, some of our folks in the 815 service, though, they can't, uh, they, they don't drive later in the day, and so they've missed out on the Lord's table. So what we're going to do is this year, we're going to be having on our normal Lord's Supper days, we're going to continue having Lord's Supper in both services now. Uh, so those folks that are in 815 will be able to participate. Uh, but we will do combined services around holidays. So today being the Sunday after New Year, uh, we're going to celebrate those holidays together. So just wanted to give you that update there. Uh, it's also a big day today because uh, we're continuing a tradition. You know, we've done uh, something every year where we call it, you know, Pray for Five. We kick off the year with a focus on evangelism, and it helps us to maintain that focus throughout the year. We name five people, and we're going to, we write their names down on a card, and we keep one of the cards. We turn one of the cards in uh, to the church, and we just, you know, we are committing to pray for their salvation. Uh, but we're going to do things a little bit differently today, and hopefully this year you can see the card. It says Share with Five. You can see the sermon title is Share with Five, because while prayer is important, while prayer is necessary, while we must pray for the salvation of the, the, the lost people in our lives, let me tell you that prayer is not enough. I think that God is calling us to do more than just pray for their salvation. And that is what I want to talk with you about today. We see a perfect example in Mark chapter 2. If you will turn in there uh, in your Bibles with me, if you're following along in your version, it's going to be there as well. It says, and when he returned to Capernaum, talking about Jesus, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. As he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let uh, down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioned, that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Can you imagine like how they must have reacted? Because they didn't say these things out loud. They're thinking them in their spirits and Jesus brings them to bear. He says, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? I mean, they had to have 
I mean, I would have been shaking in my boots if that was me. It, it, you know, he, Jesus confronts them right there. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He has said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So when we look at this, and a few things stand out to me about this interaction. Like I said, the scribes, they get upset with Jesus because, you know, he sees this man. He's obviously paralytic. He's obviously in need of healing. But Jesus' first action was not to address the physical need. Jesus sees the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. The scribes, they get upset because it is, tr- it is true and known that only God can forgive sins. And so they question Jesus' authority. How does Jesus have the authority to do this? Effectively, in forgiving his sins, Jesus is saying, I am God. And so he tells the scribes, he says, listen, I want you to know that I am here and I have the authority of God to heal and to forgive. And so he forgives the man's sins and he heals the man and he walks away and everyone is amazed. But I think we need to pay attention to the man's friends. They have a friend. He's paralyzed. He needs Jesus. Jesus is in town. They know Jesus can heal their friend. What if all they did was pray? What if all they did was hope that Jesus would somehow show up at their door and heal their friend? What if they said to one another, not even to their friend, Jesus is here, I hope he comes by so our friend could be healed. No, 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 that's not what they did. They saw their friend in need and they went to where Jesus was. They took their friend to where Jesus was. And when they got there, they had a choice to make. Because Jesus is in this house and the news had gotten out and there was a crowd, so much so that the house was full and they see the crowd and they have a choice to make. Well, you know, we can't get to Jesus. It must not be God's will for our friend to be healed. It must not be God's will for our friend to meet Jesus. That's one thing that they could have done. Is that what they did? No, they pushed through the crowd. They climbed on top of the house, all while carrying their friend. They cut a hole in the roof. They laid their friend at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says it was the faith of these men. It was their faith that motivated him. He said because of their faith, this man's sins were forgiven. You see, they demonstrated their faith in who Jesus was. And they demonstrated their love for their friend, their compassion for their friend, their urgency for their friend, not simply by praying for their friend, but by taking their friend to Christ. You see, they didn't let anything get in the way. There was a cost, I'm sure. Because I I bet if some stranger came to your house, like if I came over for dinner, and some stranger comes to your house and they cut a hole in your roof and they lay them down at, at, the, at the table so that I can pray for them. I'm not saying I'm Jesus. I'm just using, I'm making, I'm speaking in a metaphor, okay? 
I'm sure that you would be charging that person for the hole that they just cut in your roof. Do you think these men cared about that? No. What they cared about was their friend who was paralyzed and needed Jesus. Listen, I, again, I am not demeaning or saying that we should not pray. What I am saying, it's quite the opposite, in fact. You see, we can't go out and share with five until we pray for five. But we can't simply stop at praying for five. You see, if you truly love your friend, if you truly love your family member, if you truly love and have compassion and don't want them to suffer for all of eternity, with everything in me, I am asking you to do everything you can to put feet to your prayers and take them to Jesus. If you really believe that salvation is real, if you have experienced change in your life, why would you withhold the opportunity for change from them? We cannot let anything get in the way. You know, so often I, I think that we find ourselves at the altar and we are praying and we say, God, help my friend. God, send someone to my daughter. Send someone to my son. Send someone to my neighbor. Send someone to my coworker. Send someone. Send someone. Send someone. God says, I have sent someone. I have sent you. I have sent you. The reason you have a relationship with that person, the reason that you have a connection with them is so that you can share the gospel. We are too reactive. We must quit looking for an opportunity to take. We must go out and make the opportunity. This message of the gospel is so urgent. Listen, it could be the difference between an offered prayer and an answered prayer. See, these men had the faith that Jesus could heal their friend. But when they go to Jesus, it demonstrates their faith that he would heal their friend. They didn't care what it would cost them. They didn't care that you know, that, that, that everyone would be looking at them. They didn't care that there might be rejection. They didn't care what it would cost. They had to get to Jesus. You see, we talk frequently about the urgency of evangelism, about the urgency of the gospel. Salvation was so urgent to God that he sent Jesus to this earth to secure it. Salvation was so important to God that he sent his son to this earth to be rejected by men, to die the most gruesome death, all so that we could have the opportunity for salvation. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that we must in our relationships have the same mindset of Christ. It says, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You see, Jesus didn't use his position with God, his connection with God to his advantage. He used it to ours. And he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. We've talked about those difficult words from Romans chapter 9 where Paul said that he would be willing to give up his own salvation if it meant the salvation of his kinsmen. 
Those are, those are like when I get to heaven and I meet Paul, we're going to have a conversation about that because I, I, that's hard. That is hard. That Paul would not just write it, but mean it. That he would be willing to be accursed so that his family, his friends, his neighbors could spend eternity with God. That is the kind of urgency that we must carry. Yet so often, we fail to. We must change that trajectory. We must be burdened as God was burdened for the people, as Jesus was burdened for the people when he saw them. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And we've talked before about the the inadequate translation of the word Jesus had compassion. You see, the original language there for compassion means that Jesus had a visceral reaction to the spiritual condition of the people in his community. That when Jesus looked around and he saw the people, where they were in comparison to where they were created to be, when he saw where they were headed for eternity, instead of what they were created to be for all eternity, he felt that lostness into his bowels, into his bones. It affected him so much, so deeply. He had an instinctual reaction when he looks at the lostness of the people and he feels it and it hurt. It hurt. It burdened him. And he says to his disciples, can't you see that the harvest is ready? Can't you see that it is plentiful? Pray that God would send workers to the harvest. We are those workers. We are those workers. You see, Jesus, he knew what was, where those people were going to go. He knew what they were headed to. In 2 Thessalonians, it says he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hell is real. It is real. It is a place of everlasting destruction and where we, whoever is there will be shut out of the glory of the might of God forever. And so often I think we compartmentalize and we, we begin to think about the reward and forget about the alternative. Listen, absolutely, we have hope because Jesus came into this earth. Whoever believes that Jesus came and, and was, was born of a virgin that lived a perfect life and he laid his life down on the cross and rose again on the third day, when you believe in him as your savior and ask him to forgive you of your sins, we have an eternal reward waiting for us. We, we, we will be with God in heaven for all of eternity. And that, that eternal life actually begins in the moment of salvation where we can walk in peace and hope and joy like we talked about last week. 
Those things, those things come to us because of this gift that Jesus gave. But we cannot just focus only on that reward and without realizing the significance of the punishment. You see, the reward is made that much greater when we consider what was on the other side. When we consider that hell is real, a place of everlasting destruction. Now, when we think about the word destruction, we think about like obliteration or annihilation, eradication. We think about something that comes to an end. But this says this is a place of everlasting destruction. There is no obliteration. There is no annihilation. There is no eradication. No matter how much pain, no matter how much destruction, those people that end up in hell experience, there will always, always, always be an eternity of more pain and more destruction ahead of them. And when Jesus saw the people in his community... He felt the pain and the sorrow of that loss into his bones and into his bowels. And he said, somebody has got to do something about it. He knew that his purpose was to do something about it. He knew that he came to to minister, to, to die. But he needed people to go and share the truth. And that is what our role is. Our role is to go and share the gospel. For the worst punishment is not just the the everlasting destruction. It says that they will be shut out of the glory of God's might and his power forever. You see, we were created for an eternal connection with God. Hell is the literal opposite of what we were created for. Instead of being connected with God forever and ever, instead of being, you know, one with God for eternity... Hell is being shut out of his presence forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So no matter, no matter how much loneliness those people that, that, are, that go to hell experience, there is always an eternity of loneliness ahead of them. You see, Jesus knew this punishment that was awaiting those people, and he knew that that is not what they were created for. It was never meant to be theirs. And out of his love for them, because of his great love for us, he came to this earth and he gave his life. We must respond as Christ did. We must be willing to lay our lives down to share the truth of the gospel. We must be burdened by the spiritual condition of the world around us. You know, I think about our body, and, and just the, the people that I've known here over the last several years, there has been a greater concentration of cancer in, in this group of people than really I can think that I've ever seen or known. And I think that if all of us, I think we could all agree that if someone knew the cure for cancer and refused to share it, that we might have some words for that person. We would have some feelings about that individual, would we not? Sin is a cancer. It steals the life away. And here we are hoarding its cure. Here we are refusing to tell the people that we know, hey, I've got the cure for your disease. I know what's ailing you, and I know how to fix it. 
It's not me that fixes it. I just know, I know the guy that can fix it. Shame on us. You see, we must acknowledge the spiritual condition. Sin is real and everyone has sinned. The Bible says in Psalms 14, there is no one who does good. All have turned aside. In Ecclesiastes 7, it says, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. Romans 3 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Later it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5, it says, death spread to all men because all sinned. In 1 John, it says that if we claim to be without sin, we are liars and we make, out, we make God out to be a liar because he has said that we have sin in our life. Sin, everyone, everyone, everyone is in this condition of sin separate from God. We must realize that hell awaits those who are never rescued out of their condition of sin. We must treat every person that we meet in this world as someone who is in need of the gospel. Don't wait to find out, just assume that they need to know. Because listen, there is hope. Hell is real, sin is real, but forgiveness is available to everyone. Eternal life is available to everyone who believes. In John 3.16, it says that those that believe will not perish but have eternal life. In Acts 2, it says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Romans 5, it says through Christ's sacrifice, all men are made righteous. In Romans 6, uh, it says eternal life is a free gift of God uh, in Christ Jesus. In, in 2 Timothy, it says, or 1 Timothy rather, it says that God desires all to be saved. And then in 2 Peter, it says God doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants all to come to repentance In Revelation 3, it says that whoever hears Christ knocking at the door and lets him in, they will be saved. You see, hell is real, sin is real, but forgiveness is available to everyone. And it's up to us to share the message. Listen, if you have received that gift of salvation, God isn't leaving you here because this earth is so amazing. No matter how good you've got it here, Heaven is so much better. And God isn't, isn't, isn't trying to keep you from that promise. Rather, he has a purpose for you here. Because there are people in your life that need to know the truth. And he is calling you. He is telling you, tell them the truth. Let them know about who I am. We must recognize that they are in the dark and we must live out. We must be the light in front of them. My sincere prayer is that when you look at the people of this world, you see them as Jesus saw them and that you are unable to sleep until you have done everything that you can to share the gospel with them. Listen, I know it's a big responsibility. I know it is. You might say, John, well, I I will never make an impact. I can never make an impact. Do you know that God is interested in the one? His heart is always after the one. In Acts chapter 8, we see this pictured uh, with Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip 
was leading a ministry. You see, the, the elders of the early church, they were, they, were, they were preaching and they were teaching and there were many things happening. And they said, you know, we need to install people to help us lead this church. And so they identified these men and these men were, they, it was said that they were full of wisdom and the spirit and Philip was one of them. And they sent him to Antioch and they sent him to Samaria. And while in Antioch and Samaria, Philip's ministry thrived. There were healings. There were people that were, that had demons and they were being cast out. Like just God was moving. His spirit was moving. So many people were coming to know the Lord. There was a fruit of new believers that was coming and coming and coming. So much so that Peter and John, who were in Jerusalem, said, well, we got to go figure out and see what, what Philip is doing and what God is doing in Philip's ministry in Samaria. And so they come and they see what God is doing and moving. And then one day, in the midst of a thriving church and a thriving ministry, the Holy Spirit says to Philip, I want you to go to the desert. I want you to go to the desert. Now, can you imagine? Like, let's just go to where Philip might have been in this place. He looks at his at the ministry that God has given him, this church that, that, I mean, eternal fruit is being born. People's lives are being changed. People are coming to know Christ. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, Philip, go to the desert. This could not have been an easy decision for Philip to make. But you know what he did? He went to the desert. And it says that on his way, while he was in the desert, he sees a chariot. And he runs up to the chariot. Now, it doesn't say the chariot was still. So in my mind, Philip catches up to a chariot that is being pulled by a horse. And he runs up to it. And he sees in this chariot a man, an Ethiopian eunuch, who had just been to Jerusalem to worship. Now, the thing about this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, he was, he was a man of prominence, wealthy, but it says, it's, this always gets me, it says that he had been to Jerusalem to worship, but he was not allowed in the temple. Because he was a eunuch, because he was a Gentile. He was, he was, he was there, he was worshiping, he was coming to worship God, but he could only get so far because of who he was. But someone had given him a scroll, and he's reading the scroll, and Philip says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I understand unless someone explains to me? This is what he was reading. And it says this in Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 32 to 33. It says, he was like a, a led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. This passage was from Isaiah and the eunuch looks at Philip and he says, is, is the writer talking about himself or someone else? And Philip recognizes why he was sent to the desert. And he presents the full gospel to this man. The full gospel to him. And he tells them about Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. And this, this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, gives his heart to the Lord. And as they are riding along, it says that the eunuch looked out and he saw, he saw a body of water. And he says, what is, what is there to keep me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing. So they stop the chariot. They get down out of the chariot. They go into the water. Philip baptizes him. And as he brings him up out of the water, the Holy Spirit whisks Philip away to another place. 
It says the Ethiopian was just there, was just there praising and worshiping God. You see, Philip had to be obedient. He had to leave a fruitful ministry to go to the desert to minister to one person. But this one person represented so much more. Because it was this interaction that led to the spread of the gospel on the entire continent of Africa. We can trace the the growth of the church, the the, the growth of the gospel to this moment. In fact, a couple years ago, I was in uh, D.C. on work, and I was in a cab. My cab driver was Ethiopian. And somehow we started talking about faith and church. And I brought up this story. And he shared with me how they celebrate this interaction because it led to the truth being presented to his country and his continent. And it's because of the one. It's because of the one. God's heart is always after the one. Even if your neighbor doesn't become the next Billy Graham, even if your neighbor doesn't become the next person to start a church, God's heart is always after the one. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus relates this in three different ways. He talks about a a, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. Ninety-nine of them are safe in the pen. One is out in the wilderness and lost. He says the good shepherd goes after the lost sheep. He talks about a woman who has lost a coin in her house and she cleans her entire house. She searches her entire house until she finds the coin. He talks about a father whose son had abandoned him, had rejected him and said, I wish you were dead. And how that father every day looked on the horizon for his lost son to come home. God's heart is always after the one. What we must realize is our friends, our family, our coworkers, the people that we interact with every single day, they are the one. The question we have to ask ourselves is what are we going to do about that? Are we going to sit at home, safe in the pen with the rest of the sheep? Or are we going to go out into the wilderness and search and search and search? What price are you willing to pay? Jesus paid the ultimate price. And we are called to do the same. You might say, okay, John, I I understand that I need to go. I understand that I need to share. But when I get there, I don't know what I'm doing. And and I, I can identify with that. I can understand that. But I want you to understand what is promised in Scripture. You see, in Scripture it says that our role is to go. His role is to equip. In Acts chapter 1, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Hebrews, it says, no, Now may the God of peace who brought, uh, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, our role 
is to go. His role is to equip. The Holy Spirit is given to us to empower us to go. To empower us to go and speak and be his witnesses. In Hebrews it says that God will give us every good thing that we need to do his will. And trust me, it is his will for us to go. The scary part is that the equipping doesn't always happen until we've gone. Until we've moved. You see, we believe. What, what do we talk about these four men? When they took this, their friend to Jesus, they had faith that Jesus could heal them, could heal him. But that faith wasn't demonstrated until they took their friend to Christ. Our faith or our belief in the, in the salvation that we have been given is demonstrated in our testimony to that salvation and our willingness to go. And we must go. Sometimes, This doesn't happen until we get there. Jesus helps us understand in Matthew chapter 10. He says, when they deliver you over, he's talking, he's telling the disciples, he's getting ready to send them out into ministry. And he says, now listen, when you go, you will be persecuted. You will be brought in front of, uh, in front of the the Pharisees and the the scribes and the Sadducees, but, but don't worry about that. He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you when? In that hour. In that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. You see, we wait. We often wait. Until God has given us something to say. We wait until we think we've seen an opportunity. Jesus tells his disciples, you go. And when it's time, you will get the word. When you are involved in the work I am calling you to, I will equip you to do that work. Do not wait to be equipped to go. Go, and you will be equipped along the way. You might say, well, that doesn't sound efficient, John. This is, that's, that's why our own minds just are just wrong. There's no other way, no nice way to put that. Listen, if we were to wait until we were equipped, you know what would happen? We would never go. Because I don't know about you. I don't, I don't really ever feel like adequate enough to share the gospel. I always, I, I have the fear of, well, maybe I'm going to miss something or I'm going to say something wrong or and, and I want more knowledge. I want more training. And you know what? In, in my flesh, I would wait until I had all the training that I thought I would need, but it would never be enough. So Jesus says, go. And in that hour, you will have what you are to say. So go. We must go. In closing, we have to address the consequence of not going. And not just the consequence for the people. You see, if you, if you think about your friends or your family, your coworkers, your neighbors that need Jesus, and let's say that you choose or refuse not to share the gospel, or you just are silent in doing so, and they miss the opportunity. And let's say Jesus returns or they die. 
they will be sent to hell. You need to understand that. Every person that you know that does not know Jesus is headed to hell when they die. And it might seem cruel that that God would, would do that, but listen, it's their own sin, it's their own choice that is sending them there, but you will be held accountable. Just as Jesus said that in that hour you will hear what to say or you will be given what to speak, just a few short verses later he says this, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before, before my Father in heaven. And you talk about some heavy words. You talk about a warning. That Christ says that if you acknowledge me, that's when I will acknowledge you before God. But if you deny me, I will deny you. Now, don't, don't think that you're safe. Don't think, well, I'm not actively denying Christ, so I'm, you know, I'm okay. The word for deny, it actually means to refuse to affirm. It, re- it means to refuse to identify with. It means to just not proclaim the truth. It means that you aren't acknowledging that you are associated with Christ. And so the question that we all must be aware of is what reason does Jesus have to stand for our salvation if we treat it like a secret to be kept from the world? The simple truth is he has none. Because again, the testimony of our salvation confirms that it has made an impact, that change has really happened. See, throughout the scripture, God, he speaks through the prophets, he speaks through the writers of of scripture, and specifically with Ezekiel and Paul, we see this illustrated. In Ezekiel chapter 3, God says to Ezekiel, now you are going to be my mouthpiece. You are, I'm going to give you a message to the people. That it, it, and when you deliver this message, if the people who are wicked, if they choose to reject my message, I will hold them accountable. They will experience the destruction that I am promising them. But he says, Ezekiel, if you refuse to share this message, that I am giving you for my people, I will hold you accountable for their destruction. I will hold you accountable for their punishment. Paul wrote like this when he was writing. He says, I, my hands are clean when it comes to you because I have shared with you the truth. Christians have dirty hands when it comes to the world. Because we have failed to share the truth. But we need to realize God will hold us accountable for our silence. Listen, I know that I am, I am in your face today. But I'm sitting right there. Do you think this is not an, this is not an easy message for me This is a sharpening message for me. Because as I was thinking and preparing and praying, well, who are the people in my life 
God kept saying to me, how are you going to share with them, not just pray for them? This walk with God is not, it's not an easy one. You said, I said, well, Jesus said that you know, his burden is easy and, and it's light. Well, compared to the burden of sin, absolutely it is. But it will cost us. It should, it must cost us. Why? Because it costs Jesus everything. Everything. He stepped out of heaven. He, he, he surrendered a perfect connection with God the Father to be rejected by him, to be, to be abandoned, to have God turn his back on him, to receive the punishment that was due for me, that was due for you. Jesus didn't hold anything back. Shame on us for holding everything back. So each of you in your bulletins, you have a paper. You have a paper that, that says share with five. Now we are getting ready to to come into our time of communion and taking the Lord's table. And as I was thinking about the way to connect these items, I was drawn to 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing to the church because they were abusing the Passover feast. They were abusing the time of communion. And because they were not treating it with, the, with the, the, the respect and the reverence that it deserved, because they weren't taking it in, in the way or intent that, that Christ instituted it, Paul had to correct them. And he writes these words to them, reminding them of the purpose of taking communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, for, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, this is the purpose. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, as we prepare to take communion, as we prepare to take the Lord's table, these elements into ourselves, what we are doing is proclaiming the sacrifice that he made for us. We are proclaiming that we believe that because of that sacrifice, we receive his life into us. And that we believe that he rose again and that he is with God in heaven and that he is our savior. That we proclaim that death until he returns means that we expect his return. And in that expectation, we are confronted with the responsibility of sharing this truth. That I proclaim it not just when I take the elements of communion. That I proclaim his death and resurrection with every breath. Every single breath. Paul calls for a time of reflection and we will have that in a moment. And as we reflect, I want you to think about these things. I want you to think about the five people. And, and you might say, well, I know more than five. I know you do. We all do. 
But I want you to think about at least five people that you have relationships with. Maybe people that you, know, you, you need to build a relationship with, but you know that they don't know the Lord. I want you to pray and reflect on who those people need to be. I want you to commit that you will pray for their salvation and commit to God that you will share the gospel with them this year. And as you pray and reflect, and as we prepare to take communion, I want you to to pray. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And I want you to pray with me as I pray that God would reveal to us anything in us that separates us from God. We kick off our new series next week called Revive All. And what's interesting is when we think about revival, it is often for the benefit of the body of believers, but it makes an impact in their community. I didn't want anything to get in the way of God doing a work in me. I don't want anything to get in the way of God doing a work in you. So as we take a moment of reflection, truly, honestly, Surrender yourself to God and let him speak to you. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your son. I thank you, God, for the sacrifice that he made. God, my prayer is that as we consider that, that you would confront us with the truth. God, show us, reveal to us the things in our life that separate us from you. Forgive us for the times that we have failed to put feet to our prayers. Forgive us, God, for denying you by choosing to be silent. Forgive us for seeing the people of this world, the people in our lives, not as you see them, but just as other people. God, break our hearts, burden us, God. Let us feel that same reaction and that same burden that Jesus felt on that day when he saw the crowd. Let us feel it in our bowels. Let us feel it to our bones, God. Let, us, let it motivate us to do everything that we can, to not let anything get in the way of bringing them to you. Forgive us for the times that we have failed to do this in the past, God, but we are here and we are repenting. We confess that as a sin and we repent from that today. Forgive us, God. Walk with us as we choose and we will, Lord, move forward with urgency to share your truth. God, show us the people in our lives that we need to be witnessing to that we need to share your gospel with. God, burn their faces into our spirit. Break our hearts for their salvation. Let us see them, and every time we see them, let us see their eternal destiny. Let us identify and recognize the distance between what that is and where they were created to be, God. And let us make the opportunity to share with them. 
God, we are here. We surrender to you. We want to be used by you, not for our glory, God, but for yours. We give all of this to you. We give ourselves to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.